0: You're listening to the Game on Glio podcast with Shannon Traphagan.
1: Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of being diagnosed with brain cancer, including glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagan. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game on or visit our website, the Game on for insights and guest snapshots. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also share us with a friend. This podcast is in partnership with Brains for the Cure. Learn more at brainsforthecure.org.
0: When my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't know where to turn.
1: How do I prepare myself as a caregiver? As a 22-year survivor, I've talked to hundreds of patients, mostly just listening and answering questions. I've visited dozens of websites, some good, but none I thought truly met the needs of survivors and caregivers. I found what I was looking for in Brains for the Cure.
0: This is a resource I've been looking for. Not only did I learn a lot, but it also reassured both of us that we are not alone.
1: With resources and news from Brains for the Cure, patients and caregivers can advocate for themselves and become decision-makers in their own journeys, learn about treatment options and clinical trials, and connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals through our ambassadors, online support groups, and personal stories. Find out more at www.brainsforthecure.org.
0: On today's show, we have speaker and author Christine Carlson.
1: If you'd like to watch an extended version of this interview, please visit our YouTube channel, The Game on Glio Podcast. Hi, so I want to welcome everybody back to a really special episode of the Game on Clio podcast. We are doing something slightly different for this month's episode, uh, for our February episode, and it is really focusing a lot on grief and loss. And with us today is Christine Carlson, who is the co-author with her late husband, Dr. Richard Carlson, of the New York Times bestselling Don't Sweat the Small Stuff books. She's featured in, as a subject of a Lifetime movie based on her book, Heartbroken Open, which is a true story of coming alive again after such profound loss. So Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so grateful to have you here on a very special video episode of our podcast this month.
0: Well, thank you so much, Shannon. It's wonderful to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me on.
1: I have heard from so many widows across the globe who are in their 30s, in their 40s, who have either suffered very significant loss very quickly and it was unexpected or ended up going through a journey with a significant other who was suffering from disease and then things happened very rapidly and all of a sudden they've lost their partner in life. So for those who are listening and and watching this, I, I would love to start with just discussing a little bit of your journey as it relates to your husband Richard, because you were actually about the age that I am now, uh, or was a year ago, when you lost your husband.
0: Yeah, so I was in a long-term marriage and partnership with a man who I consider to be the love of my life, and we were together twenty-five years. And he died really suddenly. He was only forty-five. I was forty-three. Was a, a very famous, very well known author at the time of his death, considered one of the top gurus of happiness in the Western world, actually. Had a huge following of fans. You know, he, <laughs> you just don't think somebody like that is just going to, you know, die suddenly. He got on a flight, and on the descent of that flight, he had a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot that travels up your leg and explodes in your lung, and you you don't survive it generally on flights. Every once in a while you hear of somebody who, who caught it um, and they were able to survive. But mm-hmm. when it catches you by that kind of surprise, he didn't survive it. So our lives, you know, were pretty storybook um, in a lot of ways, just a very, you know, with a wonderful marriage, two daughters in high school at the time, you know, I'm telling this story looking back 15 years now. And I know for you, Shannon, that must just seem like an eternity. I, I couldn't even imagine at the beginning of my loss what I would be like or how I would ever make it to this point of looking
1: back 15 years later. You know, as I talk about your book, and, and you actually have a recent copy of your book, Heartbroken Open. If you could hold that up and show our listeners and our and our viewers As I started reading through your journey, and a a number of things struck me, not only were we about the same age, I was 43 when my husband passed away, and he was 45. It wasn't as sudden as Richard's passing. Uh, It was sudden in the sense that he was doing exceptionally well for a good year, and all of a sudden just rapidly took a turn. And so we weren't in anticipation of what was transpiring. Uh, at the time that he passed, and um, as I was reading the beginning of your journey, the thing that struck me so much was not only that you had two young girls that you had to somehow tell this to, and I want to talk about that, but you also mentioned that you had an inkling that you had like this this feeling, like this gut instinct, before he left to do those interviews and get on that flight that this that something just seemed off and, and you couldn't quite put your finger on it, and I would love if you could touch base on that a little bit, because that really struck me
0: yeah, you know, and I, I have to say, like as far as my own guilt went in my grief process, that was the hardest thing that I had to contend with because there was a part of me that that just i didn't act strong enough when I had that inkling because we were in midlife, and I just you know nobody thinks that you're going to die in midlife you know at least i didn't it wasn't in my consciousness now i know a lot of people die in midlife and but at that time i didn't and i i knew something wasn't right and i could see it i could feel it i even now realize i even felt the spirit of death in our home like there were weird things that happened the night before he left like on our bathroom there's two sections to our bathroom and they both have wall-to-wall mirrors. And mm-hmm. he was at his hotel. He hadn't left on his flight yet, but my mirror on my side of the bathroom literally popped off the wall and was resting on a series of lights, a vanity light, and and it had popped off and it's done, it's put on with mastic. That stuff only burns off in a fire. It was so odd and I I said to Richard on the phone when I talked to him I was like wow this is so weird I don't know what's happening like because I could feel this this heavy energy mm-hmm. happening and I but I didn't understand what it was and I couldn't believe I was in denial that it was truly anything like death you know and I did say to Richard you know something's not right you should go to the doctor but he was a push hard kind of guy and he was like, "I'll deal with that when I get home. I'll be fine," you know, that
1: kind of thing. Well, no, he wasn't fine. Yep. It's uh, see, just hearing you talk about it. I before Mike was even diagnosed, I had had this weird sensation for like two months, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was. We were just getting ready to adopt. Uh, We were six, seven weeks away from adopting. Uh, I had just published my first fiction novel. He uh, had some really positive and and major uh, moves coming up for work for him. I felt like all of these things were falling into place, even though we had suffered a number of miscarriages. And I couldn't shake this feeling. And I didn't know what it was. I kept thinking, oh, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm anxious because we're finally adapting and things are finally coming into place. But there was this part of me that felt like I was standing still. And I don't know how else to describe it, but as you're talking, it was the same weird sensation. And I just felt like, what, what is wrong with me? Like, I can't figure out something is stuck. And I don't know what that is. And then a couple months later, he was diagnosed and my, my brain couldn't even keep up. Like I couldn't, I couldn't catch up to what was going on at that point.
0: Oh, I imagine.
1: So it's so weird. You know, you just don't realize that your your body, that intuition is just so spot on. You just, it's so hard to navigate because you don't think that the, this kind of stuff is going to happen when you're that young.
0: Yeah, you really don't. It's not, It just isn't, it just isn't in your consciousness.
1: No, the process of telling your girls, I can't even imagine um, because we you know, we don't have kids. And um, I've heard from a lot of widows that it was kind of a double-edged sword for them. They were so grateful to have children because it was a piece of their loved one that they get to keep with them and got to watch kind of flourish and watch their loved one flourish inside of them. But at the same time, becoming a single parent all of a sudden and needing to find a way to help them navigate through their grief and their process while you're also trying to do it yourself and then take on the role of both mom and dad talk a little bit about that because i i can't even begin to imagine that process
0: well there's a lot of things that you think in the beginning of grief you know like when people say to you oh you should be so grateful that you had such a great love or you should be so grateful you have children those two things stand out as the things that people would say to me that i'd be like um <laughs> well, I didn't feel super grateful that I was going through this, so I wasn't real grateful I had such a great love in those moments. and I also, of course, my kids were the reason I lived. You know, initially, I felt like I didn't have anything to live for if it wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what you say is very true it it's very, very difficult to navigate your own incredible loss with their incredible loss. And, you know, as a family, you're just kind of, you're doing this dance between taking care of them and taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. You know, it was telling them was, it was the worst, absolute worst moment of my life. I mean, that just still makes me cry because it just, You never, ever, ever want to deliver any kind of news that's going to hurt your children. And hurt doesn't begin to describe the devastation that you feel as a family at that kind of loss of a parent. You know, it it doesn't describe it. It's, It's just a complete shattering of life as you knew it on all levels. And and they know it. Doesn't matter how old they are, they know it. They know that my kids, you know, fortunately they were 14 and 17, but the day that they got that news, their childhood completely ended. I mean, it completely ended. And I'm so grateful that they had my husband for the length of time that they did and that he was such a wonderful father because yeah. I knew that at their age, no matter what, they would always have those memories, you know, when they got through the trauma of loss. you know it, it was it was the toughest part of my loss, actually, was not dealing with myself, but also making sure they had everything they needed and dealing with their loss. And Kenna was really young. I mean, I remember Jazz saying, um, Mom, it's so weird, it's like Kenna's out with her friends. It's like she's not it's like nothing's happened. And I said, that's because she can't deal with it. She cannot deal with this in the same way that we are dealing with it. She's just, she can't, you know, I I'd love to say that, you know, in some ways you become a stronger family and we did, Mm -hmm. but in other ways we became very dysfunctional as a family. So how do you, how do you mean? Well, the dependence things that you develop as a family, you know, my kids got really scared that something was going to happen to me. Um, mm. They began to have issues with each other that they never had because jazz would take on more of a parenting role. And, you know, so th- there was just there's there just stuff that happens. You yeah. know, you, you, yeah. you lose a very integral part of your family and the all the relationship dynamics change you know, you're, you're, you're on your own, whereas you used to have your partner to back you up. Mm-hmm. Now you don't have that. And and it's almost like you have to prove to your children too, like that you can do this. They don't have a lot of faith that you can yet,
1: but you have to show <laughs> them that you can. <laughs> yeah. So you're trying to help navigate the girl's grief, but you still had to process through this yourself. I mean, was it, one of those situations where you kind of went behind closed doors and you just kind of melted to the floor and had a moment and then got up and said, Okay, you know, now it's time to go and take care of the girls. Pretty much. Really? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, Pretty that much. takes, that I, takes know, a
1: lot of strength.
0: I think like I might have looked a little stoic to the girls at times because I was trying not to influence their grief. The difference between me and my girls was I could fall apart when they went to school, but they went back to school and they couldn't fall apart all day at school. Yeah. So I tried to create this environment where they could fall apart when they were at home and I would hold them in that. And yeah. when they would leave for school, I would just get quiet and leave the house, very have the house very quiet. I wouldn't busy too much. And I would check in with myself and I would allow myself to really grieve when they were gone. I had a lot of friends that came over and they'd go for walks with me and listen to me and be there for me as I cried. And that's kind of the rhythm that I did. And then sometimes I'd let myself fall apart in front of them because I knew they needed to know I was grieving. And I knew that I needed to give them permission also to be able to fall apart about it. They're kind of interesting because they don't grieve directly the loss, but every time something happens to them, it brings up that loss. It triggers that loss. And so you start to realize that, you know, they're not going to be at their highest performance, of course, because they're going through trauma. I mean, and so... You know, Kenna was a soccer player. Well, she'd miss a ball, I and mean, where well, she never would miss a ball before, mm-hmm. or she got cut from her soccer team. And I knew that the anger she felt was directly related to her grief mm-hmm. and the loss that she was going through. So, you know, it, it really helps to be aware of that—that that kids do grieve differently, and they grieve in different timing than you do. And I have to say, like, because of Kenna's age, her actual grief started her first year of grief started after a year. Wow. Whereas jazz went right into grief. Like jazz was more right into grief alongside of me. um, And really, you know, had to deal with her grief totally differently.
1: Wow. That's, it's really interesting, you know, and, and this kind of brings up my next question because Grief really is a process. And I and I love that you talk about how you you'd always allowed yourself to just feel what you needed to feel in that moment and be present with whatever you were feeling because I've heard from so many people that there's the stages of grief. And and it drove me nuts mm-hmm. every time I got a book <laughs> from somebody or somebody sent something in the mail to me or said, you know, what stage are you at now? And I'd be like, ah, it's not stages. It's, you know, it, it's, it's all jumbled up together. It's kind of all, all mixed together. And one minute I'm, I'm angry at God and I'm, I'm yelling at him. And, and we had had a priest with us um, at the end and, and I, I was talking to him about it. And I said, I, I swore, I swore at God and I didn't want to. And he's like, he doesn't care you let go, whatever you need to let go. And, you know, but I would go from that to all of a sudden just being a puddle on the floor and and crying uncontrollably to the point where I couldn't breathe. And then the next minute I'm getting up and saying, okay, I got to get this done. I have a to-do list. Mike can't do this anymore. So I've got to take on all of the stuff he did. And it just kind of all melts together. And in the book you talk a lot about, how this is a process and not a destination. And that stuck with me a little bit. And I was very looking forward to talking to you about that because I, I myself want to know what that means.
0: It is not a linear process, grief. Um, grief is very much a fluid process, um, but it's different every moment. I feel like when I say it's a process, not a destination, what I mean is that if you have a cup Let's just say you're the cup and you're full of emotion. The only way to carve out, you know, an empty space in that cup is to express that emotion. That it just keeps filling, 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 filling until it's overflowing if it's not expressed. And what you want in grief is an empty cup. What you want is to empty out grief and to allow yourself to do that through any. Healthy means that you feel is healthy for you. And that could mean laughter, it could mean crying, it could mean physical expression of whatever helps you to express that emotion and get it out of your body. And when I say it's a process, I mean that like you're never going to know necessarily when your grief is done, you know, like until you know. And when you reach a place of acceptance of your loss, that's kind of when your big grief process is going to start to soften. See, I, I think in terms of where I'm at now and, you know, where you are, and I think where I'm at now is I'm sad sometimes that Richard's not with me in body. I'm very sad about that. and But I'm not in grief any longer. I don't grieve my loss any longer. I know one thing to be true, and that is that it's a myth. To say that grief and love are the same thing. Yeah. Grief is a full emotional expression of your loss.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's why I say it comes as a friend because it's a healing companion to your loss until you reach a level of acceptance of your loss. Mm-hmm. And then grief says, okay. I'm I don't I'm not needed anymore not in the same way. I'll come back another day for another loss, but not today. Yeah. See you on this one. <laughs> now, the loss of yeah. a life partner is a long grieving process. It is a very long grieving process. And it and it, I don't know anyone that lost a life partner that they loved and thought of them as their person that didn't grieve 10, 15 years. So it's, it's a long process, but it's not the same every day. And you can't make it a destination because you don't know where you're going. You know, you don't know where you're going on any given day. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I tell most people in my life that, you know, don't expect me to know anything past the end of today. If I can get through the end of today or the end of this week, I'm doing really well (laughs) after that. exactly. And it's so crazy that that has changed that much because before Mike got sick, I was very forward thinking, you know, I was planning the second book and we were planning travel for a year out and, you know, what our family was going to look like. And you had all these future thoughts. And future needs that you always dreamt about. I, I'm a very big daydreamer, and I tell people that all the time. And, and it was one of the reasons that Mike loved me. You know, I, I'm so you know I, I was always very future thinking. After he got sick, and after he passed away, that completely dissipated. I mean, that just went out the window, and it became quite honestly, it was one hour to the next. If I can get through the next hour, I'm doing okay, and I couldn't even think about getting to the end of the day, let alone trying to go to sleep at night. And then now it's to the point where, yeah, I'm starting to think a little bit more ahead, but I still don't plan too far in advance. It's you know I'm just going to worry about what I have in front of me today, and that's that's as far as it goes. So it's amazing the shift that that takes when you go through such a significant loss like this. It's it blows my mind.
0: But I think when you do
1: start to see
0: yourself being able to focus on what life might be like a little bit ahead, I think then you're going to start to realize, oh, I'm, I'm on the road to recovery here, you know?
1: Yeah. I've had a couple of those moments. You know, I've let myself daydream a tiny, tiny bit about where uh, things might be. And um, my counselor has made it very clear to me that, that's progress when you do that. And then the minute you panic and say, no, 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 I can't think about that right now. I can't think that far ahead. That's your intuition. Your instinct is just trying to protect you again and trying to say, you know, you've been through so much, you know, you don't want to think about that because you don't know when the rug will be pulled out from underneath of you again. So she's like, that's not surprising, but you should be excited that you are having those moments. Absolutely. Because of the way that Richard passed away. And, I, and I've heard this, and I have gone through this experience myself, and I still have moments of this. Did you ever go through a period where you were fearful of doing something because of how he passed away, like fearful of getting on a plane because something similar could happen to you, or now that you were the only parent left for the girls, did you become more fearful about certain things happening?
0: You know, I I
1: wouldn't call
0: it like fearful. I just call it being more careful, um, Mm -hmm. smarter for my children. Because my kids were, you know, still in my house and, you know, and I was very much aware that I was their only parent now. I did things like I stopped riding horses, for example. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't just because of Richard's death. We also had a, a dear friend at the very same time that he died, maybe a couple months later, have a horrible accident a very accomplished rider had a horrible accident while wearing a helmet. And she's got a terrible brain injury that she will never recover from. And there were some things like that, that I just immediately knew that my time with horses was over. And I wouldn't put myself in unnecessary harm's way or risk. Mm -hmm. But see, I don't call that like fearful. I call that being, you know, pretty intelligent about what's real, you know, it's I was being more realistic about my circumstances and how I, what I saw my role as, um, in order to take care of my kids, you know, I have to be
1: really smart about my life. So during the first year uh, after his, uh, after he died, and, and this is interesting too, because you and I have had this discussion outside of the podcast where you, you, you made it very clear to me, you hated the word passed away. Yeah richard died
0: (laughs) he might have passed away but for me he died
1: (laughs) yeah and that that's that really kind of struck a nerve with me because i would say passed away to all so many people because i just felt like it was just it softened what happened to mike but i hated saying that and i just felt like it's more politically correct or it's the way you do something it's just the way you say it that he passed away And then when you said that to me, that I I hate that, you know, he didn't pass away. He died. It's just, that's just, that's exactly (laughs) what it is. And I sat there and I was like, wow, you know, that's yeah, he, he, he died. You know, he's not just gone somewhere temporarily. He is, he is, he's dead. And it took me a little while. And I have been saying that more and more recently because of the conversation we had. And I've been more, more aware of that. I think that that's really interesting when Richard did die During that first year or the first couple of years after, I don't know if you've had this, if you had this experience, but because of COVID, because of the pandemic, within probably five or six months after Mike passed away, you know, I had to go over to an urgent care facility. I had to get COVID tested because I had been exposed and we weren't sure. And I had to fill out forms for the first time. And I hadn't had to do that yet um, since he had died. And I literally went into a panic. I when it came to the question of your emergency contact. And that I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting that kind of a moment and I I literally sat there for 5 minutes and I started bawling my eyes out in the middle of this clinic and the nurse came up to me and I said I don't know how to fill this out right now because for almost 20 years he's been my emergency contact and now I don't know what to say. And I don't know if you ever had experiences like that. But oh, yeah. (laughs) So, I I mean, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because these are the kind of this is the kind of conversation that so many young widows are craving to hear. These are those little moments that nobody else knows and talks about.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, like when you're, when you go to the social security office and you're filling out the social security form and it says surviving spouse, and you're like, I remember I'd see that word surviving spouse. And I'd be like, oh yeah, that's me. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, barely, barely surviving. surviving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I feel like I never had been in that position before in my life. And so it was all very new. And like you experienced, I had a weird moment where <laughs> like my kids this is kind of a funny story my kids wanted to buy these ragdoll cats okay we were just maybe i don't know a month and a half into grief and i was i was like what like you went to buy kittens. We already had a dog, you know, we'd had (laughs) cats before. And I'm like, they would just, I'm like, they're just using this. They're using this. (laughs) Like they're milking this all the way. They even had these ragdoll kittens picked out and boy, were they just the fluffiest, cutest things, you know? And, and I said, well, where are they? And they said, they're in Lodi. And I'm like, I looked up Lodi where it is. And I'm like, it was like, you know, an hour and a half drive or whatever. I'm like, well, who has them? Oh, we found them on the internet. I'm like, great. (laughs) Like, great. (laughs) I had this moment where we were leaving the house to go pick up these kittens. And I remember just feeling this feeling like if something happens and we disappear, nobody is going to know we've done this. Mm -hmm. And so I left a note on my dining room table. We have gone to Lodi to this address to pick up two kittens. (laughs) And I remember thinking how crazy that was, like how crazy that I was having this thought, but... It was a thought of reality, you know, like, I don't know who these people are. What if we're being lured? You know, I, I mean, I was like overprotective of my family yeah. at that point. And that kind of stuff really hit me. Like, I was like, wow, I don't, I don't have my protector. And yeah. I'm feeling that vulnerability in that. And also, yes, the forms that you have to fill out and the ways that you have to erase mm-hmm your person is just astounding. Sometimes I still get phone calls and they ask for Richard and they say, do you know where Richard Carlson is? And I said, not really. I'd sure like to know. Let me know when you find out.
1: You can only imagine. I can just imagine their face, the look on their face and hearing that. And they're just Not like,
0: really. I would love to know where he is. Let me know yeah. when you find him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you talk to him, I would love to chat with him. <laughs> yeah yeah,
0: yeah. But, but there are all sorts of ways that you know it triggers you because it's the concrete way in which your loss becomes this very real thing yeah. that you're dealing with and it's painful to have to erase them from every bill and from your life in that way it, yeah. it's, it's it's a very painful process.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned that the bills that was a sticking point for me. That was really, really, really difficult moment for me. And I remember going to, we had a joint account through a bank associated with his work. And I remember going in to make some changes and to deposit some money. And the clerk kept telling me, you know, we have to close this particular account and just put it in your name. And I was at the drive-through and I remember sitting there and I freaked out. And I, I, I basically yelled into, I'm yelling through my car into the speaker and telling her, you know, do you have any idea what I'm going through right now? I can't process this. I can't change this account. You need to leave it alone. Nothing can change. Nothing can change. And she just sat there like frozen, like on the screen, like looking and, you know, cause they don't know what to do. And for them, it's, it's not a big deal, but I didn't want anything else changing in that moment. I just wanted everything else to just stay the same. I wanted to see both of our names on the checkbook. I wanted to see both of our names on the accounts. And yeah, it's those moments, those, it's those moments you don't expect that come around, they creep around the corner. And they just hit you. And then as I drove home, all I could think was that poor woman, what did I just do to her? Like, you know, I just berated this poor clerk who's just trying to do her job. And as you went into your second year and you talked about this in heartbroken open, and there were moments where I was, I would blush as I was reading certain excerpts and certain parts of certain chapters, where you talked about, you know, that women have needs. And that we- Yeah,
0: especially at 43. Yes, like <laughs> Less where I am now, I will say. Less where I am now. But at your age, oh boy. And there's nothing like trauma to stir up that whole need thing. Oh boy. Terrible time yes. for a husband to die.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> In a honestly- 40s. I didn't realize what that meant until I read those chapters. And then I was Googling and I'm going, this explains so much, you (laughs) know, like everything that I'm feeling like, oh, I did not put those together, that this is kind of another phase in a woman's life.
0: Yeah, it's a terrible feeling. I mean, honestly, like, trauma and loss and grief it, it stirs you up and it makes you very amorous yeah it's just the nicest way to put it the most congenial <laughs> way to put it <laughs> And yeah you don't have your partner you know like it because the it's also the awakening aspect of it too it's such a deep awakening it awakens all your senses you know every every emotion that was ever potentially um, pushed aside by you is stirred up in loss and grief. Mm-hmm. I think it's what's made widows, maybe perhaps a little bit vulnerable um, to predators, because, you know, once they find out you're a widow, they they, they they know, like, I didn't know, I mean, I was completely naive to it, but, but other people do know. So mm-hmm. I think it's a time for a woman to really learn about her own body and to, you know, take care of her own needs. And it's hard, because, you know, you've been partnered for two decades. And for you, just yeah, yeah. That. Probably yeah. masturbation wasn't a huge thing. I mean, everybody <laughs> masturbates to some degree, but I mean, usually like that leads to something else when you're doing it with your partner, you know? So it's like, yes. there's all these ways in which you have to learn, relearn your body and how to take care of yourself.
1: And did that catch you off guard after? So oh, after totally. you lost him, because that completely caught me off guard. I mean, I, here, I, I was trying to deal with just getting through the day and taking care of the bills and doing his duties on top of what I was doing, and then also go through the grief process. And so, when you know these these stirrings and all of this stuff, it get, became overwhelming physically as a woman. It, like it completely blindsided me. I was like, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, I don't even know how to ha- how to wrap myself around all of this right now. It just completely caught me off guard.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it caught me off guard, too. And it it caught me off guard how suddenly it came on, too. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, my, my, my sex drive was always fine and healthy, but I never thought about it. So it wasn't. And so just to think be thinking about it all the time was just really crazy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'd say for anybody who's listening, you know, definitely the time in your life to get a vibrator, you know, definitely the time to to figure out how to deal with that because it's in and with no shame about it, you know, like yep. with absolutely no shame about it, you know, you're way better off taking care of yourself than getting into yes. a situation where you're looking for somebody else to take care of you that way. So right, it's a definite time of exploration. And I would just say, be very gentle and careful with yourself about wanting to jump into a relationship that's a Mm -hmm. serious relationship. Because we just, as women, you know, we don't really know how to do the friends with benefits thing, although that works pretty good initially (laughs) if you need somebody, you know, like (laughs) we, we tend to forward think and make it into something that it's not or whatever. But I think if you do have a lover early on, that's okay if that's what you decide is right for you. You just Uh have to be aware that that might be a transitional relationship. Right. And then pick wisely, you know, pick somebody who can really hold you, who cares about you, who's a kind of person that can hold you when you sob after you make love, Mm -hmm. you know, with them. Mm -hmm. Like, because that's, that's a really important thing is that you want to be with somebody who has a high level of compassion.
1: Mm -hmm. It's also a very intimate thing. And so I had talked a, a little bit in a blog that I write in conjunction with the podcast that really focuses just on grief and loss, that for a lot of people, whether you're a male or a female, we have a tendency to get stuck into doing certain things to help alleviate or help us pass through the grief, whether it's you know becoming a shopaholic, whether it's drinking too much and using that to alleviate, whether it's you know, being a little too intimate or or having sexual partners because you're trying to find something or fill a void, there's this tendency, you know, or overeat or not eat at all. We have a tendency to use something to fill that gap that we have without realizing that it's a crutch or that it's something that's just filling a void instead of figuring out how to really keep balanced and, and stay healthy during this time of grief. And you talk a little bit about that in the book as well.
0: I think as a culture, we've learned how to numb out to our feelings. And certainly there are times when you're in grief where you, you know, your psyche even just will give you a break because I don't know if you noticed this, but there's like the, for me, there was like this three day cycle where I'd be really in deep and then I'd come out for a couple of days and then I'd go back in and, you know, it was, it was very cyclical, yeah like a wave. And and it wasn't all the time because, you know, our psyches can't, it's like, it, it's like having a child, natural childbirth, you know, like you get these breaks between contractions because you have to have a break, like mm-hmm. with your psyche, you just can't handle it. And right. And when you don't, it just feels like you're being battered and pummeled, you know, so... Um, And I've had my natural childbirth experiences both ways. So I'm like, (laughs) I I really, uh, yeah, so that there's this way in which anything you do could be trying to numb out from your grief, and that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, many ways we feel left behind, and we have to find our way through that. You know, it's just different for every person. I've talked to many women who don't take a lover for many years, and I've talked to other women, they took a lover within three months. So it's, it's really an individual choice. Mm-hmm. What do you need to survive this loss? Right. What do you need? And, and who is that gonna, who are you going to choose to be with on that level?
1: The first time you were intimate with somebody after Richard's passing, how hard was that? I mean, did you, did you cry?
0: Oh yeah. Well I describe it in Heartbroken Open. It was hilarious, yes. actually. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> like, I, 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 I kind of
0: I, I was like, I I knew this man cared for me and I kind of he was a good friend and I just kind of wanted to get it over with. Like I was like <laughs> so anticipating what it was gonna be like. Like I just wanted to get it over with. And and I wanted to be with somebody who cared about me. And mm-hmm. but it was really intense. Like I I literally like he came, you know, this close to my face to kiss me and I took a dive off to the side of the couch, <laughs> like literally dove, my whole body <laughs> dove off the side of the couch. And, you know, and he was so patient and so sweet, you know, that it, it really was a good experience. And you know what, I didn't cry after that first time with him. Mm-hmm. I kind of just thought it was Oh, okay. Well, I got that over with, you know. And I was like, it's it's like riding a bike, no problem, you know. <laughs> You're just riding a bike
1: with sure. somebody
0: else, you know.
1: <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I have moments where I wonder if Mike is looking down on me, and and I don't know if you if you've ever gone through this or if you if you experience this now. But, oh, yeah. But I'll sit there and I'll do something or or I'll say something or I'll. I'll screw something up and I'll be like, oh, I really hope you didn't just see that. <laughs> I really hope you weren't just watching that. Oh, we did. I'm and, so yeah. sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: it's a threesome yeah. all the way.
1: <laughs> oh, that's – so there you go, everybody. Anybody who's walking through this process, <laughs> just know that going in.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I just – I think like in spirit world, which is where our beloveds are, is it's a different experience. It's not, there, it's not a physical experience any longer, so they're just – Fully embracing what we need and what we need to do, and and wanting us to um, choose what's going to make us feel joy and keep us going in this life, because you know it's 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 a life that's still that you have to live and that you you know that you have left to live. So you have to heal first, and that's the hard part. You know where I'm at you know, 15 years later is I'm I'm really fully, fully healed. And I have so much joy and so much life and so much to look forward to even now. So life continues on. It does. And it really does continue on more fully for people who are awake to it.
1: Did you ever go to counseling after you lost Richard?
0: I did, but I have been through so much counseling and therapy in my life and so much personal growth and so much mm-hmm. personal development. Plus, I had all some of the top people in the world to talk to through my grief. So I didn't really feel like I should be in necessarily
1: counseling. But yes, <laughs> I did do some counseling. The reason I bring it up and I ask is because a lot of people try to, they try to fix it. They try to go through their grief on their own without leaning on or get any support or without talking to somebody about it. And I've been very open about my counseling journey and the fact that for as much as I had some supports around me, I knew that I needed extra help, that I wasn't going to be able to navigate through this on my own because I had seen loss before. I had experienced relatives' deaths. I had never gone through the profound amount of grief that I went through after my husband died. And on top of that, we had had three miscarriages that I was able to get through because I had him to lean on. Yeah, that's a lot. So now, all of a sudden, having all of those, I knew that it was just too much, and I needed somebody to help me navigate through it. So, anytime I've talked to a widow, I always ask them, you know, did you uh, did you use counseling or go to counseling to help get through this at all? Has your counselor been through um, something similar? She personally hasn't. She has had a number of people close to her that have. And she trained in uh, grief and loss, especially with um, infertility and and miscarriages. So it was kind of a combination. And she's just, I I always tell people when it comes to counseling, it's like clothes. You have to find the right fit. You can't just pick a counselor and go and then just assume that it's going to be great because not every counselor is the best fit for every person. And so you really, it's, you kind of have to try on different counselors to figure out whose personality and whose methods are going to be best for you. But I've also found in the beginning for me, it was really hard to navigate talking to other young widows. Cause I didn't even know where to really find other young widows. It's not like there's this huge community that's just kind of ready and waiting. Uh, you kind of have to dig around and with the pandemic, it's made things even harder to connect. So it it took a little while. And I've since since doing the podcast and doing some speaking, I've had people actually reach out to me. And through talking to them, I have found a bit more healing along in the process. But I still go to counseling uh, to this day.
0: Yeah, I I think having a counselor is a wonderful thing. I mean, personally, I would I would want my counsellor to have gone through a similar kind of loss to understand firsthand, because um, mm-hmm. I just don't think there's any better teacher than experience. And I don't I think there's certain aspects of becoming a widow, especially a younger widow, that you just can't possibly understand unless you've yeah. been through it. And I just couldn't take any advice from somebody who hasn't gone through it. So that's just me and my stubborn. <laughs> you know, willy-nilly way, but I'm you know, I that's how I felt and but I do think that counseling is really important and whether you have really close friends or people in your life that can support you, you just need to have that person that you feel a hundred percent safe with that you can say anything to. Mm-hmm. And that they can hold you in that, you know. So it takes a very special person to do grief counseling.
1: Yeah outside of the counseling, and and you talk about this in the book, you obviously had an enormous amount of supports, very strong supports, both common friends of yours and Richard's and family members. Did you go through at all a process of losing people after he died? Because that is an area where I I have been struggling greatly. Um, I have lost some people that I didn't expect to lose. Some people have blamed me, which I, I haven't been able to process through, but that's been a challenge, um, especially as a young widow, that I didn't, I didn't foresee that.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, we call those the secondary losses of the main loss that we've incurred, you know, and I think when I look back, there were even family members that I wouldn't say I lost them, I would say I chose not to participate in life with them for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I where I did my own gauge was, I had one life vest in the sea, and that was for me and my daughters. And I couldn't carry Richard's parents in their grief, or his siblings, or my parents in their grief, or anybody else in their grief. And I wasn't willing to. I do think it's really important to be with people who can hold you. and And I definitely... I wouldn't say I lost friends, but I definitely didn't choose to spend time around the friends that felt like they had to fix me mm-hmm. or fix my children mm-hmm. or couldn't handle the pain that we were in because that mm-hmm. pain is going to last for a while and you just can't be dealing with people who can't handle it. You know, like like mm-hmm. they if they can't handle it, they need to be out of the inner circle for a while. Yep.
1: Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I've definitely had I've had some people who they they want you to hurry up and kind of get through it, you know, and they can't understand your vulnerability or, you know, your really, really bad days. And they sit there and tell you, you know, y- y- you've you got to start moving on. You've got to start moving on and you've got to get through this process. And you just you just shake your head going, OK, sure.
0: I think a lot of people left my life and that I didn't really notice for a long time. <laughs> and I thought, what, what happened to them?
1: Because <laughs> you, know? the you had one life vest.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was more concerned yeah. with what was immediate. I wasn't sweating the small stuff, definitely. <laughs> I just was like, I was more like the a clearing everything, you know, just clearing it out, you know, yes. like just being
1: present for me and my girls. That was my goal. You say in the book, you'll always meet Richard in your own heart. What does that mean?
0: Well, I, I feel that love is a heart connection. And I mean, in my experience of my loss, remains. It's what remains, no matter what. I mean, I'm never going to love Richard any less than the day I met him or the day he died. I I'll probably love him more for realizing the impact that he had on my life and realizing that he gave me that incredible opportunity to love and be loved the way we did it. And so the heart is just, I think the most, just, I think that's where we think of love as residing, even though love is a much bigger energy than even one or two hearts. There's just one heart in the universe and that's love. So I think that just the other day, I was talking to a grieving widower. And he's grieving one of my closest um, girlfriends who passed. But he was saying that when he had moments of joy, he was experiencing a lot of guilt. Yep. And I said, Well, that's normal. You know, we, we go through that because it's, it's called survivor's guilt for a reason. You know, I said, What if you thought that every time you experience joy?" Would you still feel guilty about it if you were feeling like she was experiencing your joy with you? He's like, no, that's a great way to think about it. And I said, yeah, "Yeah, because I really feel like they're right with you. They're always with you. Like they wouldn't be anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So they're with all the people that they love and that they get to experience life with you now Mm -hmm. and that you do carry them within you. And within your mind, within your heart, within your whole being. That's just at the cellular level. They're part of you and they always will be. Mm-hmm.
1: Trying not to cry as you talk about that. <laughs> of course. I think that's a great way to look at it. I, I definitely have had those moments where I've had some joyful things uh, happen to me recently and some hard things. Um, but I think being able to see it as him experiencing the joy as I'm having it. And he also gave me a great gift. He left me a note in November on the one year anniversary of the day we had his service. I went to go into one of my dresser drawers and I had been in there a dozen times before to take out workout clothes and stuff. And the, the knob was loose. And I, I was trying to get my finger inside the inside of it to tighten the screw and I couldn't feel it. And there was a note taped inside that drawer. And when I pulled it Mm -hmm. out, it said, I love you and I miss you already.
0: Oh, that's beautiful.
1: And of course, you know, I had fell into a puddle (laughs) and uh, it took a minute. But the fact that I had found it that day uh, on the day of his service and not a day before, not weeks before, not a month after he passed, but on that day, and, and he had securely, t- he was an engineer, so of course, you know, that thing was not moving. So it took forever. I had to take the whole drawer out just to figure out what was blocking the screw. And he I, he must have written that before he went into the hospital. And uh, That's beautiful. it was a great gift. Um, and I was so, once I was able to see it for what it was, I was so grateful for it. And I carry that with me, that note with me now. As you've gotten through, I mean, like you said before, you know, you're 15 years in now to this process and you talk in the book a little bit towards the end of the book about the capacity for loving somebody else, the capacity for just Mm -hmm. love in general, and that the heart grows as we continue to grow and, and to transition and move. I know going into your second year, you had met somebody named Randy that you talk about extensively in the book. And, That's not his real
0: name, by the way. Just to say, he chose that name. He has quite a sense of humor. He chose Randy. It's an English expression for being horny. Oh, he has quite a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, whatever.
1: I love that. Okay, that just adds another layer to everything that I read now. (laughs) So there's so many. Oh, he I chose that, that name. Well, tell him that he's got a great sense of humor. That is terrific.
0: He does have a great sense of humor.
1: So, as you started to develop that particular relationship, how did you feel going into that? And is is he somebody that you are still with today? Or
0: he was really the second man that I was with after my husband, and it happened around the first year. The first man was a, a was became a dear friend, but. It was just a very temporary thing. It really was truly that friends with benefits relationship for a very short period of time. And um, I was introduced to Randy from Girlfriend. And I didn't really start out having any expectations about him or the relationship or what it would be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just had this really special, very, very special connection, a very soul connection. Now he was also coming out of a divorce, and he was actually in another relationship at the time. So it was a very messy, like I will say, super messy experience. <laughs> uh, my friends all said, "Well, you had Richard all these years. Now it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> now it's your turn to go through the messy part of relationship." Yeah, but it was great because I did get to learn so much, and I, in a lot of ways, I had this sort of latency that had happened. In my life, based on the relationship being such a long term relationship. And then I, I kind of like slipped back to being like a 19 year old girl, mm-hmm. you know, that I was before I met Richard for a very short period of time. Plus, I was going through very deep grief. Now, this man was very sweet and he understood grief very deeply. And he really held me so beautifully. Really, he was such a huge healing partner for me in, in loss. And just so sexy. I mean, honestly, like, like, I mean, never if, God, if God could give you the sexiest man, that that's what he was. He was so <laughs> hot and so sexy. He looked like Johnny Depp. Like, seriously, wow. he looked exactly like Johnny Depp. He was a wow guy. Yeah, Definitely he was super, super cute. <laughs> uh, and he looked very different than Richard. Richard was really just handsome, but he was a tall Swede. This man was not tall. I mean, there there was so much, he had to be very different for me and yes. look very different, be very different. But it was beautiful. It was a lot of, it, it really helped me a lot. Plus he was a great cook. Like I would just literally come, go over and sit on his counter and he would cook for me, which was also very sweet, you know, to have a man cook for you. And yeah, he took care of me in, in those times we were together like that. And mm-hmm. yeah. And then to say, you know, we have maintained... A really close friendship mm-hmm. to this day. We went through lots of different ups and downs. I mean, really, we're talking. It was seriously like eleven years. <laughs> so oh, we, a long we, time. we were really like we were very confused about what we were to each other for eleven years. <laughs> and um, you know, and I, I don't know what's going to happen in our relationship. Honestly, never know. He's yeah. sent so special to me,
1: and. We just, you know, we just remain so close. It's such a healthy way to look at it. And I was curious because of because of where the book ends. Um, it, it obviously doesn't carry forward to where you are today. So you know I have another book, right? No. No. What's your other book? From
0: Heartbreak to Wholeness, The Hero's Journey to Joy. Well, that's the next book that I need to read.
1: That's your next (laughs) book. (laughs) That's the next one. This this has gotten me through those first two years. Now I need to move on to the next one.
0: (laughs) That's the ten year journey. That's like I wrote that one at the ten year mark. Looking back, like that's where my how to go through grief and come out of it, the hero, Mm -hmm. you're already on your way so beautifully, and you've already clearly chosen that path. So I'm not worried about you. But for many people, I feel like that's the great pivot that you have to take toward resiliency is to choose not to be a victim of your circumstances. So I talk a lot about that. It's a totally different book. I feel like it's probably my my greatest book I've ever written is that book from heartbreak
1: to wholeness the hero's journey to joy. Anybody who's in who's watching who's listening these are books that are extremely helpful and it's it's part of why oh, I you. do what I do. It's part of why I meet with people like Christine, writers, speakers, you know, we we put ourselves out there for other people to help them through their journey and I'm assuming that that's part of what helped you navigate your grieving process was trying to find a way to help others. And it was why I started the podcast. It's why I do public speaking and and writing as well, because I knew that the only way I was going to get through this was to find a way to help others, because it's the only thing that I know. I don't know any other way, but to try to help somebody else navigate the journey.
0: Yeah, I've always said that when you're in grief, like say you're 15 months in grief, somebody you meet is just going through their loss, you know, 10 months. If you reach your hand out to people and you you have to pull them out of the trenches, it makes you stronger to do that. It you have to be stronger in order to pull them up.
1: And not everybody can, but I have found that connecting with others and helping other people through it has been very helpful for me.
0: Well, not everybody's going to have a podcast or be an author or do that kind of work, but everyone can reach out to somebody Mm -hmm. who's going through loss and you can, even if you're not going through loss and you're listening to this, hopefully it gives you just great compassion for families and for people, you know, you realize, wow, it's not just the widow, it's the family, you know, or you, you start to realize what a really big experience it is for that person who is going through loss. And it helps just grow your own sense of compassion.
1: Yeah. So you say that you've got a lot of joy in your life right now, 15 years in, where are you right now?
0: Well, I mean, my daughter Jaz has five kids. So I'm a grandmother wow. five times over. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the nana, I, I like to be called Nana. Um, oh, that's cute. I just love what I'm doing so much. I just love my life. One of the things that I realized um, at the 10 year mark was that rather than think in terms of having another life partner, I think in terms of really partnering up with life. You know, if you love your life and love life so much and it's your first love, that life itself is my very first love. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure I would have known to say that when Richard was alive, but I can say it now. And then everything else, my family, my friends, you know, everything else falls in line after that. Wow. And we can get so much joy by just being so present in our lives, so engaged mm-hmm. and looking for those small ways. I, I have to say that joy is a is a more moment to moment, smaller experience for me now. It's not driven by large events or it's more like, Oh, like look how pretty it is outside today or <laughs> oh, I'm so grateful that I had this conversation with you and I got to meet you and you know those are the kinds of joys that that you string a lot of those together and it becomes this big experience of joy but it's really little small moments and I think it behooves us to notice them, even in grief, you know, that even in grief, we have small moments of joy. Yeah. And we're meant to, because honestly, we're we're meant to experience joy while we're here, as much as we're meant to experience everything else on this journey of life, you know, um, joy is a big part of it. But also grief and sorrow is a big part of it, too. And I, I always love what Kahil Gibran says in the prophet that your greatest joy is your sorrow unmasked.
1: Mm.
0: Well the unmasking part is the grief part yes. and then the joy when you unmask that grief and you take it off and you're done with it then the joy is is what's really present and you have earned it. Man, you have <laughs> earned it with a badge of honor because you've gotten through the unthinkable and the unimaginable. And you know, just looking at you today, Shannon, and your beautiful smile and the light that you shine I know that you have terribly painful, lonely moments, but you are on the path to recovery. You are on the path to the greatest joy you've ever known in your life is going to happen to you.
1: Thank you. I, um, I appreciate you saying that. And every day does feel a little bit better than the day before. And, and I like that saying, you know, stringing together a bunch of little joys. It refills our cup and gives us that sense of purpose that we strive for in this crazy life that we're given. And so I I think that that's beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And I I couldn't agree with you more because I'm just starting to take note of those little tiny joys, those moment to moment and day to day joys. And uh, I'm embracing them more fully than I did even, you know, six, seven months ago. So Christine thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. You're welcome. It is such such an honor and a blessing to to know you and to talk to you and to watch you continue to walk through your journey. If you haven't seen uh, her lifetime movie, Christine's lifetime movie is out. Heather Locklear plays her in the movie and she has her book, Heartbroken Open, uh, which is out now. And your second book, tell us again the title of that one.
0: It's From Heartbreak to Wholeness, The Hero's Journey to Join. if you want to watch the Lifetime movie, you need to search Don't Sweat the Small
1: Stuff, the Christine Carlson story. Perfect. Christine, thank you so much. Um, I look forward to seeing where you go next. And um, we will talk again soon. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm sure everybody has heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It's something that so many of us experience after we've gone through a very traumatic event, whether it's from grief and loss or something that has happened directly to us why am I mentioning this? I'm mentioning it because in a recent conversation related to today's episode, it was brought to my attention that there is also something called post-traumatic growth. And I find that interesting because post-traumatic growth is something that comes out of deep distress. And rather than walking through that adversity unintentionally, and hiding away from what has happened to us. We find a deep desire to yield change, to help others, to have it coexist with post-traumatic stress. Post-traumatic growth is an interesting concept, and I love that it has a positive spin. This concept reminds me of today's episode. Christine Carlson as well as the numerous foundations that are out there doing work in brain cancer, the work that I'm doing with the podcast, the doctors, the caregivers that are out there. We are all walking this journey of post-traumatic growth. And I love that. That's what this is. This is our journey. This is what we're doing. Did any of us ask to have this journey, to have this path to walk through this? No, but we have found a way to yield change, to initiate inspiration and positivity and hope. If Christine's story has taught us anything today, it's that we are all resilient and we can all find our way together. It is not a lonely experience. It is not something that we have to walk through in solitude. Whether you're suffering from brain cancer or from grief and loss or from another disease altogether, no matter what side of the story you are on, we can all hold each other's hand and walk through this. And that's the inspiration I take away from today's interview. And it reminds me that I'm not alone walking through my journey. There's a saying that Mike and I have had, and it kind of goes along. It ties into this idea of post-traumatic growth. We always had these mottos, these sayings up on our fridge. And anytime something inspired us or kind of hit us at our core, we would print it out and we would put it somewhere where we would always see it. So it would remind us of something. And we did this long before he was ever diagnosed. But after he got diagnosed, we found this saying that I still have up on the fridge now. Fear is daring the soul to go beyond what the eyes can see. And for those who are walking the journey of post-traumatic growth, that's what this is. It's daring the soul to go beyond what the eyes can see, to take our experience and create change and inspiration to have faith. And so I hope all of you take away from today's episode some wonderful stories, some strength inspiration for your own journey no matter what journey that is i want to thank all of you so much for joining us for this month's episode please follow us on instagram join our youtube channel follow us on facebook and stay tuned for our last episode of season one in march we have two amazing pediatric doctors that focus in pediatric brain cancer And after that, we will take a very short hiatus. We will be back in May for season two of the Game on Glio podcast. I'm so excited. We are kicking off Brain Cancer Awareness Month in May, and it is going to be an amazing episode. Very inspirational. You won't want to miss it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We will see you next month. Brains for the Cure is an innovative online resource to help brain tumor patients, survivors, and caregivers become advocates, educate themselves, and connect with others throughout each phase of their journey. We are proud to partner with the Game on Glio podcast. Visit brainsforthecure.org to learn more. If you like what you hear in the Game on Glio podcast, then you'll want to visit our YouTube channel, the Game on Glio podcast. You'll see all of our video content, special episodes that we do, plus, all of our video features going into season two for the game on glio visit our channel like us follow us and subscribe to our channel today thank you so much for joining us this week on the game on glio podcast make sure to visit our website the where you can subscribe to the show via podbean itunes google apple spotify or via rss so you'll never miss a show while you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd love to hear what you think. Please post a review, give us a rating, or simply share with others so that they can listen to the show in the future. That'll help us too. If you like this show, you might want to check us out on Facebook at GameonGlio, or on Instagram at GameonGlio Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next month for another exciting episode of the Game on Glio Podcast.